everyone. So we are in Matthew chapter 16 this morning, and of course, uh, as a not a natural public speaker, I always look for the friendly faces in the audience um, when I'm up here because the butterflies are really going. And just so you guys know, those of you that sit over here, the friendly face that represents you is John Crawford. John Crawford is the friendly face on this side of the room. He's always got a smile on his face. And for those of you on this side of the room, the friendly face is Heather. She's always nodding her head and smiling, even if she doesn't understand a word you're saying. It's all very encouraging. So thank you to you both. Um, I, I really lean on you guys every time up here. And I, I'd be curious to hear from the other speakers, too, on who their uh, go-to people are when they're uh, looking out at the audience. So we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we went all the way to the resurrection last Sunday for Easter Sunday, and now we're coming back uh, into the life of Christ, and we're continuing on the journey with him. And at this point, we're about six months before the cross, from what I understand. And so we are in chapter 16, and uh, Tim Hart took us through the first uh, part of chapter 16 two weeks ago, and we will finish most of the rest of chapter 16 today. I actually left uh, verse 28 for Gene next week. It really does go with his passage next week. Uh, so I uh, cut it out of my sermon and threw it over the fence to him. Um, I think the chapter break maybe is a little arbitrary uh, here in end of chapter 16, beginning of chapter 17 there. So there's some very famous and interesting phrases in our passage this morning, ones that you recognize, ones that we talk about all the time, and so we'll see those as we, as we go along. So uh, let me see if my clicker is working. Look at that. Um, working right off the bat. So let's just jump right in, and I'm going to read this first section in Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to start at verse 13, and we're going to go to verse 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So, uh, I don't know if you guys can see this, but this, our passage today takes place in Caesarea Philippi, and you can see it's way up north here. It's about a 25-mile journey from kind of the normal camping grounds uh, for Jesus and his disciples in Capernaum. They've come up here to Caesarea Philippi. It's in the old tribe of Dan, uh, if you remember your uh, divisions from the Old Testament, and you've heard the phrase from Dan to Beersheba, 
from the far north down here to the far south. That's the, the breadth of the land of Israel here. And so uh, they made this journey up to Caesarea Philippi. It's a rocky place. And it's also a, a Gentile-dominated area. And so they, Jesus and the disciples have taken this journey to get away from the Jewish crowds. It's almost a retreat for them. Maybe, who knows how long they were up here, a week or two, to kind of get away. And uh, Jesus gets to spend some concentrated time alone with his disciples. Um, and so he really just pours his heart into them, and you'll see that throughout our passage this morning. And he asked the disciples, uh, who do people say that I am? What's the, what's the word on the street out there um, about who I am? And the disciples give various answers, um, Elijah and John the Baptist and Jeremiah. And uh, that reminds me, if we kind of did the same thing here today, and we went out there on the street and we asked people, well, who is Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? We'd probably get a wide variety of answers. Uh, he, he was just a guy. He was a, a great moral teacher. Uh, he started a religion. We'd get various answers. Uh, and of course, uh, that's not the correct answer. Uh, some of those things may be true, but uh, Jesus is looking for something more when he's talking to the disciples. And so he says to them, who do you say that I am? And uh, Peter gives this great answer here, this great answer. The things that Peter says, right? And this one was a good one. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. What a statement, what a confession that Peter makes here. And um, I, I read one author that said that this incident, this sentence, is the pinnacle of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's, it's uh, the revelation that we've been waiting for. The, 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 the penny dropped. Everything came together. The disciples got it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And don't we all have to kind of come to this decision and answer this question? Who do we say that Jesus is. What is our answer to that question? If you were to answer that in your own mind this morning, who do you say that Jesus is? Can you echo what Peter says, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's who you are, Jesus? Or do we have a different answer for that? It's a personal decision about who Jesus is that each of us has to make. We can't say, oh, my parents followed this guy, Jesus Christ, so I'm just going to follow along uh, after what my parents do. Or I can't just say he's a great moral teacher or he was a crazy man that for whatever reason people wanted to follow. We have to give an answer to that question and the correct answer is you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then uh, Jesus says, wow, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And then he says, uh, my father revealed this to you. You didn't figure this out on your own. Um, in fact, Jesus himself didn't tell Peter this. He, Jesus didn't say in the previous sermon, I am the Christ, the son of the living God. It was all of Peter's time with Jesus over these two and a half years so far, and, and it was the father revealing uh, this great confession to Peter. Notice Peter had no idea it was the father that revealed it 
to him, Jesus had to actually point that out. And I think God speaks to us that way. He doesn't necessarily speak in an audible voice where we say, oh, that's God talking to us. It's, it's through our life experiences, through our time uh, walking with Christ. Um, it's um, God speaks in, in those small, silent, uh, quiet voices um, where we can come to a realization that uh, Jesus is the Christ. And then we get this verse where uh, he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, uh, someone else I read said, said, this is maybe the most controversial verse in the Gospels. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And some of you know the, the Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar at all. I know Olivia likes it when we talk Greek up here. Uh, but this one is interesting because uh, Peter, of course, is Petros, and Petros means rock. Jesus is calling him Rocky, giving him the nickname Rocky. And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And so um, the Catholic Church, as you know, says, oh, well, Peter is the rock, and, and the church is built on the foundation that is Peter. Peter is the rock that the church is built on. Peter is the first pope, um, and all the successive popes follow in Peter's footsteps. Um, and that's the question. So the Greek in this, uh, some say, well, I guess the Greek does say Peter is Petros, and this rock is Petra, that there are two different Greek words. And so some say, well, that is, is the difference there. Petros means a small little stone, and this rock means like this picture, this huge immovable object. And so you have this um, other debate that says we're talking about a little stone, we're talking about a big rock. They're two totally different things here. So um, Jesus is not talking about Peter when he says, on this rock I will build my church. Now, there's others that say uh, by this time in the Greek language in the first century that Petros and Petra they mean identical things. And still others will say um, Jesus didn't even speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. And so when he said the word rock, there was only one um, word for rock in Aramaic. So he used the same word. So it's in my mind, it's kind of inconclusive. But the question is, when Jesus said this rock, it feels like he was pointing at something or someone. And so was Jesus pointing at Peter and saying, on this rock I will build my church? Or was he pointing at the cliffs and saying, on a rock like this I will build my church? Or was he pointing at himself and saying, on this rock I will build my church? Um, and we don't know the answer to that question. But what we do know from uh, church history, early church history, is that uh, no one ever said that Peter was the rock. It wasn't part of the early church confession at all. Peter himself never called himself the rock. He called Jesus Christ the cornerstone. Um, and so I take it to mean that this rock is Christ. Uh, that's one option. And what works equally well in my mind is it's Peter's confession. On this confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, 
that is what the church is built on. So it's either Christ himself or the confession of Peter that uh, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now notice the word church as well in this verse. Um, That word uh, has never been used before. Uh, This is the first time in the New Testament this word church is used. Matthew, the only um, gospel author that uses the word church, and I think it's mentioned maybe two times in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first time. But notice it doesn't say, on this rock I have built my church. It doesn't say, on this rock I am building my church. It says, on this rock I will build my church. So the, the church is future at this point. The church does not exist yet. In the future, at some point, uh, Jesus will build his church. The church is different than Israel. Israel is not the church. The church is not Israel. And so you'll see in a second here where that church begins. And then we get this statement, uh, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against church. And the main meaning that um, the commentators will say about this verse is that the gates of hell represent death, and that death will not have uh, victory over church. Death will not have victory over Christ. Uh, The church will prevail over death uh, because of Jesus Christ. And then the other thought on this verse is that gates are a defensive um, mechanism. They're a defensive part of, uh, in a war. They're preventing an attack. They're defending. And so the thought here is that the church is on offense and the realm of Satan is on defense and the Satan will not be able to defeat um, the church, the gospel, that we can go into the world as the church and we can, uh, through the work of God, bring people to Christ and have them um, have victory over the death and uh, forces of darkness. Then we get this um, verse, I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And this is where we get the popular idea that Peter stands at the gates of heaven, right? He's standing there, he's got his clipboard, and he's got his key into the gate, and there's a big line waiting there of people who have died, and he's checking his list, checking it twice, right, and finding if you've been naughty or nice and let you in or out. I mean, isn't that the picture that we have here? And that comes from this verse. Um, But it's not the keys of heaven, it's the keys to the kingdom of heaven that we're talking about here. And the idea here is that Peter was given a special dispensation, kind of a one-time thing, to open up uh, the kingdom of heaven to the world. And how do we see that? Well, we see that at Pentecost when Peter preached the sermon there and Uh, The Holy Spirit was given, the church was born, and 3,000 souls entered into the kingdom of heaven. We see that when Peter visited the home of Cornelius and visited with his household there, 
and the household of Cornelius came to Christ and the gospel was opened up to the Gentiles. Those were the keys to the kingdom of heaven that Peter uh, used. Uh, he was the only one that had those keys. He had that spref- special privilege from the Lord to open up the kingdom of heaven to the Jews and the Gentiles. And because he unlocked those doors for us, the gospel was open to us as well. And then we have this verse, or this uh, rest of this verse, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I read a lot about this, and I don't understand it. So if you want an answer to this, uh, you've come to the wrong place this morning. Um, But I think, I guess what I took away from it is that whatever God has revealed uh, to us in his word as the church, we have the authority to implement that. God has told us what's right and wrong um, as believers, uh, how we are to how we are to obey, and we as the church and church leaders, we have um, the authority from God to teach that, to proclaim that. Um, God, through his word, brings people, and through the spirit, brings people to Christ, and when we see someone that has accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior, we have the authority granted to him to bring him or her into our church family, into our church body. So that's Uh, the best I can do with binding and loosing. And then Jesus says, okay, we need to be quiet about all this. We need to uh, not tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. Let's keep it a secret. Well, why does he do that? Why does he say, let's keep quiet about this? Well, um, the main reason here is that Jesus knows that the rejection of himself is already phrase, fait accompli. It's already going to happen. It's, it's kind of a done deal. There's no point in kind of pushing him as the Messiah anymore. The rejection of, of Jesus, it's already become evident as we've studied along in, in Matthew, and it's just yet to become official, but, but it's going to happen, and so there's no point in going down that road anymore, and Jesus is really turning his focus now to the cross. So let's look at our second section here. Uh, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not um, setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus, uh, this really is a a pivot point in Jesus' ministry here uh, for two reasons. Um, One is, and he says it in these verses, that uh, the elders, the chief priests and scribes, they're going to kill him. It's going to happen. the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, is going to make it official. Jesus has been rejected. That's one thing. And the second thing is what we just read about before with Peter's confession, that he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that was a key goal in Jesus' um, years of ministry. As he had the disciples around him, as he poured his life into the twelve, maybe even more so than kind of preaching to the masses, preaching to the 5,000, the big crowds, 
It was about his disciples and pouring into them, and they finally got it. And so he's, he's a, there's two goals or two things that have happened here. The Jews, the Jewish leaders have rejected him, it's for certain, and the disciples know who he is. They finally got it. And so Jesus is going to turn his focus now and, as the, as the verse goes, set his face like a flint toward the cross. And so Jesus shares his plan with the disciples. And I think, um, I think he does this three times in the Gospel of Matthew. I think that maybe there's two other times uh, in the other, other Gospels, so maybe about five times altogether that he tells his disciples beforehand what's going to happen. And uh, he lays it out, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die, and I'm going to be raised again. And the disciples, they don't like this plan at all. This is not a good plan, Jesus. This is a bad plan. We just acknowledge that you are the Messiah. You are the Savior. You are the Christ. And what that means to the disciples is you're here for victory. You're here to take control. You're here to take power. You're here to redeem us, to save us. It doesn't involve you dying at all. This is a bad plan, Jesus. I don't know why you're talking about being killed. And not only that, the idea of being raised again, there's no evidence from um, God's word that 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 part clicked at all with the disciples. They don't even talk about that. They focus on, what are you talking about being killed? They don't even, the resurrection doesn't even register with them at all. They don't get that at all. And so, bad plan, Jesus, and Peter says, okay, Jesus, come over here. You know, I need to, I need to talk to you for a minute. Let's uh, come off the side of the road here, and uh, let's you and I have a conversation about this. And, and, and he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So, Peter takes his rabbi, takes his teacher aside, takes the man who he just said, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Also, you are God. You are the son of the living God. You are man, you are God. Pulls him aside and rebukes him. Uh, Not Peter's finest hour, not his finest move here. Um, And Jesus calls him Satan. Uh, Just 15 minutes ago, he had said, you know, you are Peter, Simon, son of Bardona. You are Peter. Now he says you are Satan. Uh, Peter has gone from this pinnacle to, uh, I don't know if you can get much lower than being called Satan by by the son of the living God. Um, And I think there's, what Peter's doing here, why Jesus calls him Satan, is that really this is Satan's plan. Satan had tempted Jesus in the wilderness and said, you don't have to do this dying thing. You know, just bow before me and all of this is yours. You can reign without the death. You can have the crown without the cross. And that's Peter's plan. That's Satan's plan. They're the same plan for Jesus to avoid the cross. And so I guess the lesson for us is, uh, I guess the lesson I want to take away from this is, Am I trying to follow my own plan? 
And am I trying to bring along God into following my own plan for my life? And if I'm doing that, is my own plan really the enemy's plan? Or am I submitting myself to God's plan for my life? Um, Am I hindering the plan of God? Or am I able to step back and look at things from a big picture and say, okay, I want to be under God's authority. I want to follow God's plan. So I skipped all the pictures there. So uh, the last section here, I won't skip the pictures on this one because they're great for this last section. So third section here. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So, there is a cost following Jesus Christ. Now, we often talk when we share the gospel about the free gift of salvation, the free gift of eternal life. And that is true. But there is, believing in Christ is free, but following Christ, there is a cost. There's a famous book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who gave his life in World War II. And um, there's a cost. There is a cost to following Christ. And so we need to count the cost and see if we are willing to pay that. We need to deny ourselves need to deny ourselves. Are we willing to say yes to God and no to ourselves? Are we willing to uh, put his priorities for our life ahead of his, or ahead of our own? And then we need to take up our cross. Now, each of us has our own cross to bear. Each of us has our own suffering and our own challenges uh, that God has put in our lives. Um, Are we willing to suffer for his sake? Are we willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Are we willing to uh, bear our cross? And are we willing to follow him no matter what the cost is? And then are we willing to lose our lives for his sake? Are we uh, recognizing that true abundant life only comes in following the Lord Jesus Christ? And then I've got to spend some time on this I think this must be the word that clinched me in this passage to begin with. I got to spend some time on the word profit. So as an accountant, uh, I'm dealing with the word profit every month. And uh, the calculation for profit, the simple one, is revenue minus expenses equals profit, right? What you bring in minus what you have to give out equals profit. And so... The calculation here is all the stuff that you can do minus your soul. What is that profit calculation? How much profit can you get from that? Anything that you could imagine that you could bring in, have, get, minus your soul. What's the profit on that? 
and um, you think about the person that has what are the what are the things that we the world strives for maximum fame maximum wealth maximum power maximum pleasure those were the ones that I thought of fame and wealth and power and pleasure what would that even look like someone having all of those things um, is that worth your soul that's the question is that worth worth losing your soul to have those four things. I think today about Vladimir Putin. He is making a math calculation. He is making a profit calculation. And he is saying, the lives of my soldiers, the lives of the men and women and children of Ukraine, I'm willing to give those things up. And in exchange, I want more territory. I want more power. I want more fame. I want to be. Uh, I want to live throughout the annals of history as the famous Vladimir Putin. He has made a calculation here, and I think he's made this calculation. He is exchanging his soul, at least it appears to me, for uh, for something else, for for some sort of gain in this world. It's hard to uh, understand the calculation he's making, but I think he's making calculation like this. And if Vladimir Putin dies without Jesus Christ, he will forfeit his soul. Here's a one that's closer to home for me. When I drive to work on Washington Avenue every morning, there's a billboard and it's got uh, the Mega Millions uh, amount on one side and it's got the Powerball amount on the other side. And I think on Friday, the Powerball balance was up at $400 million. And uh, every time, it, it's, it's right there in front of my face when I'm driving by in the morning, and I make this calculation in my mind and say, man, $400 million. What could I do with $400 million? What kind of life could I live with $400 million? And I go through the exercise and I say, okay, I'll have to pay half of it in taxes. And I, I do all the math out and I and then I try to spend the money and I, I, I can't get very far, honestly. I, I can't even get up to a million dollars on spending it. But in the end, I come to the answer that I'm not sure I would be any happier or any better off if I won this thing. In fact, my life would probably be worse and you guys have probably done that same thing. And of course, there's been studies done on lotto winners and how unhappy they end up being. Um, but, but these are the things that are right, staring us right in front of the face every day. Um, we need to step back from the things of this world and we need to take the perspective of eternity. Now, <clears throat> um, Randy Alcorn, Many of you know that name. He wrote the book on heaven. That's just an amazing book. If you haven't read it yet, please do. Uh, but he has this idea of the dot and the line. The dot being this life and the line for believers and unbelievers stretching on into eternity. And he says, do the calculation yourself. What is important? Is it the dot that's important or is it the line? Is it this life that's important or is it eternity? Now, it doesn't matter how much we cram into the dot. You know, we can 
all those things, money and power and pleasure and all those things. We can make the dot bigger. We can be extra healthy and exercise, you know, five hours a day, and we can extend our dot 10 years, but it's still a dot. It's still unimportant compared to the line of eternity. The question is, what are you doing with the line? Are you living for the line? Are you living for eternity? Or are you living for the dot? Are you living for Christ? Or are you living for your own pleasures? And then this verse, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In in reading this in the past, I always thought this was just a restatement of the question that we just read. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? This is actually a different question. This is a different question here. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? And this is coming from the perspective of the person that has already died without Christ. This is from the person that is already in in hell, in the lake of fire, in eternal torment. And the question is, what can that person give up in order to get his soul back? What could that person give up in order to get his soul back? And of course the answer is, that person has nothing. They've lost all the things that they had on earth, and they've all the things they had on earth, they got in exchange for their soul, and so they have nothing. They've lost their soul. They're eternally dead. There is nothing that they can give in exchange for their soul. This is a really horrifying thought. Um, put yourself in that perspective and say, if I, those of you that don't know Christ, what happens on the other side? What can I give in exchange for my soul? Can I give anything? And the answer is no, you can't. There's nothing that you can give in exchange for your soul. And then just this last verse, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming in power. He's coming in glory. He's coming with an army. He's coming victoriously. And for those that know him, he's bringing his reward. And for those that don't know him, that have made that awful exchange with their soul, they will spend eternity apart from him. So here's a couple applications here as we finish up here. Are we building the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ? Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. As, as we think about church life here, Think about that phrase. Is everything that we are doing here as a church building on the foundation that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God? Are we following God's plan for us, or are we trying to get him to follow our plan? Look at that. Look at your plan for your life. We all have goals and objectives in life. We all want to go somewhere. Is that your plan, and you want to drag God along, or are you actually following his plan for your life? Are we willing to follow Jesus at the cost of our lives? Um, This is one that's been on my heart lately. I uh, am a believer. I've been a believer for, uh, I don't know, 30 years now. But I want more than a believer. I want to be a disciple. I want to be a follower. I want to be growing day after day and week after week. I want to be walking alongside the men and women here at the chapel in growth. Uh, This one's important to me. I want to follow Jesus. I, I recognize
recognize there's a cost to it, and I want to pay that cost. Can you say that the same thing, say the same thing about yourselves? Are you willing to pay the cost to truly follow Jesus, to truly be growing and learning and even suffering for his sake? And finally, are we putting God's value on our own eternal soul, or are we trying to trade our soul for something else? God values your soul in uh, an infinite way. He values it more than any other material things. He values it more than all the material atoms of this entire universe. Your soul is of infinite value to God. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. Are you valuing your own soul at the level that God is valuing your soul? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for uh, Peter's confession that we have uh, in your word, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Lord, help us uh, to uh, be acknowledging that in everything that we do here. Lord, help us to follow your plans for our lives and not our own plans. Lord, help us to be faithful uh, to what you want us to do and not try to drag you along, Lord, into our plans, Lord. Those plans are of the devil, and we want to be following your plans, Lord. Lord, help us to count the cost, and yet help us to uh, pay that cost. Help us to be willing to follow you with our full heart, with soul and mind and strength. And for anyone here, Lord, that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they would um, value their souls as much as you do, Lord, and that they would turn from the sin in their lives and turn to your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.